0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, King Jesus, Studying the Life and Work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. We are a church that passionately believes uh, in the Word of God. We confessed it today through the Catechism. We believe the Word of God shapes our thinking. It is to shape our thinking. It shapes reality, that Many times, whatever we're reading on Facebook or the news or we're talking to our friends about, that kind of shapes our affections. That kind of shapes what we want, and what we desire, what we look for. But the Word of God is the only thing that can shape it rightly. So we think, and this is just our conviction, um, the best way to preach is verse by verse through books of the Bible. That we don't want to have just a bunch of series based on whatever I think we should talk about or whatever you guys want to hear uh, because I know all you guys want to hear about is sex and money, all right? That's the only thing you want to hear about It's what I hear when other people tell me. Well, we're not talking about that all the time. We're, we're going to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we've gone through several books of the Bible already in our three short years. Now we are, uh, this is our third or fourth week in the book of Mark. And the book of Mark, as you know if you've been around here for a while, it's the earliest of all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was the first one written down. Mark is the eyewitness testimony of Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, a man who betrayed Jesus and turned from him, but the resurrected Jesus came back, found him fishing, and brought him back in and said, you know, remember, I'm going to build my church on you, bro. Let's go get to work, right? You ran away from me, but come on back. Faith and repentance is a good deal, right? And so Peter is being interviewed by Mark, and Peter's giving his first-person account of the works of Jesus. And why was this written down? What was the point? Well, everything was spread orally at the time. And at the time, people could go, you know what? I saw Jesus. And G- you know, they could say, make up all kind of crazy things about Jesus. Jesus, he floated around from town to town. He didn't need food. He was, he was more like a ghost than a man. And people would be like, whoa, really? Jesus was like a ghost? He was like... And then so at this time where the early eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they started dying off. And Peter was one of the last, one, uh, last of the apostles still around. So he said, because of all these new ideas about Jesus are popping up, and st- guess what? We still, 2,000 years later, have these new ideas of Jesus popping up. If you're familiar with Dan Brown and, and his whole novel, all of his novels, Angels and Demons, and, and The Da Vinci Code, and he's got this new Jesus that's popped up, and oh, he, he was really married to Mary Magdalene, and, and there's this whole, you know, it's just all this creepy weird stuff that you get into that's all just bogus. And the reason, they've al- there's always been these fake, false Jesus, these versions of Jesus that are popping up. And Mark says, okay, we have to squash that. I was there. We saw it. We witnessed it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus showed up to over 500 eyewitnesses. So if you want a testimony about what Jesus did, what he was like, go talk to them. They're still walking around and living, breathing today. That's the best way to do it, right? You want to find about the real Jesus? Go talk to an eyewitness. So Mark writes down this eyewitness testimony from Peter. So that there can be a living witness in in writing of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught. So if you want to get to know the real Jesus, Mark is one of the best places to go. And that's what we're doing. So we are today in Mark chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 2. We're going to study the first 11 verses. If you've got your app, flip to it. Sacred City has their own app in the App Store. Sacred City, hit Bible, you'll be right there. Or you can hit, um, if you're on Version Bible, live event, Sacred City Church will be right there. You can follow us along right there. Now, so far, in the first chapter of Mark, everybody is crushing on Jesus, okay? I'm just gonna tell you that. Everybody loves Jesus up until this point. He's preaching the gospel, which is the kingdom of God that's come to renew all things. It's breaking in right now. He's preaching that. People are responding to it in faith and repentance. He's healing people. Uh, The heavens are opening up and God's speaking down saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Everybody's loving Jesus. But today we're about to see there's some people who don't react positively to Jesus. That Jesus is really a, I I, I don't know if antagonistic is the right word, but he's, he's, He's a figure that, that people love or they hate. Very few of them uh, respond moderately to him. And it seems almost that Jesus' ministry is like a funnel. The crowds kind of loved him, but many of the crowds just kind of went, oh, wow, cool, and they went home. They, they didn't really like interact with him personally. and But as his ministry is like a funnel, as people funnel into it, and they get closer and closer and closer into Jesus, as you have an encounter with Jesus, actually actually you, you hear his teaching you 're confronted with him, or you touch him physically that his personhood demands a response from people, and people either hate him, they get offended by him, they run away from him, they curse him, which is ultimately going to lead him to his own death right or people fall at his feet, they worship him, they dance, they sing, this is the greatest man ever, and they drop everything in their life and follow him. And it's, it's a harsh reality that the same is true for us, that Jesus doesn't have fans, right? Jesus has followers or he has enemies, and that's it in the gospel, really. He, has, he doesn't have fans. He has followers Or enemies. Even though we might kind of like Jesus, you know, Jesus is my homeboy type of thing. Me and Jesus are tight, we're good. I kind of like him. I like to be around him. I like to hear his good moral teaching. If you were in a room with Jesus, you would love him or you would hate him. That's it. Now, Jesus even said this to uh, John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist, guess this greatest man that's ever been born of a woman, Jesus said. It's Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist, his time is up, he gets thrown in prison. He sends a messenger back to Jesus. He, he sends his messengers back to Jesus. He says, go find out if this is the one. And Jesus quotes this Old Testament scripture to him. But Jesus leaves out this one section of scripture. And I'm, we're going to talk about it more in a few weeks. So I'm not going to go into it too much. But he basically says, uh, the, the blind are having their eyes open. The lame are walking. The poor is having the gospel preached to them. And there's one line in there that he forgets. And the one line is, those that are in prison are being set free. And Jesus doesn't quote that to John the Baptist. So basically, Jesus is like, you're in prison? Yeah, it's not going to end well for you. You're going to die in prison. I am the one, but you, your time is up, your ministry is over. Even though you're the greatest man born of a woman, you're going to die in prison, and ultimately, because of a striptease, Right, This guy says, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? She wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So they cut John the Baptist's head off. That's how John the Baptist dies. But Jesus follows it up with his statement. After he says that, he says, But blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John, your life is over right now. Your ministry is completed. You're going to die with your head cut off and your head's going to be put on a platter and they're going to mock you and they're going to make fun of your ministry. But blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And John, John already said that I can't even carry Jesus' sandals, that he's so much greater than I am. See, Jesus, a reaction to Jesus is necessary because of who he is as a person. And can you get it? Is there anything more offensive than that right there? I am the one, I am the Messiah, I am the king, but you're going to die in prison. Don't be offended by that. I could let let you out, but I'm not going to let you out. I could fix it, but I'm not going to fix it. Don't be offended. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And what we're going to see today is that's what's going to happen. And we're going to see this over and over, and it's going to happen in your life as well. Jesus, as you get close to him, he is going to shock you. And at the end of this verse, we see... some people are saying, who is this Jesus? What's, we've never seen anything like this. And some people walk away offended, wanting to kill him. That's how good and amazing grace is. That's how shocking the gospel is when you actually understand what it is. You actually understand the message. And Jesus preaches the gospel, but he also puts it on display in a living form. And when you see it, It just, it shocks you, and it either offends you or cause you to go away singing, we've never seen anything like this. We've never experienced anything like this. What is this? So, let's jump in, and we're going to study this verse by verse. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, It was reported that he was at home. Now, why is he returning after some days? You remember, Sam preached last week. He healed this leper, and he said, this is common in Mark, don't tell anybody, right? I'm healing you. It's great. Don't tell anyone. They're like, okay, we won't. Woo! You won't believe what just happened, right? Just like your kids, just like we do sometimes, right? Listen, you can't tell anybody this, all right? Just between me and you. Okay, sure, right? And it's gone. It's on Facebook, five minutes, That's what happens. And because his fame spread, everybody heard about it, he was forced out into lonely places. He was forced out into the wilderness. So Jesus is forced out of his hometown until the crowds die die down. But here's the thing that happens, right? The, The hoopla is over, right? The riot dies. He heals somebody, and everybody goes crazy for Jesus, and let's rally, rally. We want to meet Jesus. Jesus leaves for a few days. Everybody goes back home, back into things, back to work, back to business. Life goes on forget about Jesus. So Jesus comes back into town. Verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now more than likely, scholars say Jesus didn't have a house, so he's coming back to Peter's house, where Peter's mother-in-law was healed. That's kind of his, uh, his base of operations there. And Capernaum, and Jesus is inside this house, and he starts preaching the gospel, I say gospeling, because it's probably a small crowd, he's sharing the gospel with people, and preaching the word to them, it says, and now so many people are showing up, that he's in this little house, and it's full, and they're, 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 they're expanding out the door, right, so the scholars said, no more than 50 people, this could be no more than 50 people, and uh, I mean, we would think, how could you fit 50 people in our house? Well, they don't need chairs. They're crunched in, sitting on the floor, right? And there's, it's, it's completely packed. And then what's interesting is in the Gospel of Mark, this is an, a really important theme, Mark never speaks positively about large crowds. In America, large crowds are a sign that you're doing something right? Right? Like, if you have a movie premiere and there's people dressed up in costumes and waiting for hours in line, you're doing something right. That's a good thing, right? If you have a church and it's packed to capacity and you've got a bajillion services and you're streaming all across the globe, you obviously must be doing something right. Not in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark... Large crowds were always superficial people who wanted to be entertained. Large crowds were always people that wanted to kind of keep a distance from Jesus and observe him and kind of be just close enough to be in on the action, to be hear what he's teaching, to maybe pick and choose what they like about him, but then to go away the same way they, they came into that experience. In Mark, crowds actually, every time they're talked about in the Gospel of Mark, crowds are the ones that hinder people from actually meeting Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? That crowds can be the the ones that block people from Jesus. Because in a crowd, you know, Sam talked last week about being alone in a crowd. In a crowd, I'm never going to really make eye contact more than likely with Jesus. I'm not going to get close enough where this contact is actually going to change something in me. But I can be near him. I can be in on the action. But, um, you know, many of us like large gatherings because of that. We can kind of float into the back. We can sit down. We can get our little thing. And we can walk out and leave. And nobody knows us. Nobody knows how broken we are. Nobody knows how much we're suffering. Nobody knows how dark our sin is how much despair we live with on a daily basis. So we go in and we plop down and we sing a couple songs and we walk out the same way we came. And we go, whoa, I'm so glad I'm a part of this successful thing. Look how many people are here. God is doing something amazing. And the gospel of Mark says crowds hinder people from meeting Jesus. And Jesus is never attracted by the large crowds. He gets overwhelmed with them. They show up at his door banging for more miracles. He walks out into lonely places and leaves them. He gets in a boat and gets out away by, his, by himself with his disciples sometimes. Jesus is never motivated by this desire to build a big thing and have a big crowd. But we are as Americans. Now, what's also interesting here is it says Jesus is preaching the word to him. Now, that's just a statement. Don't we all say that? If you've ever grown up in church, you hear, man, I go to this church because they preach the word. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Because obviously, when we say he's preaching the word, we mean that guy's preaching the Bible right? Hopefully he's preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. He's not just talking about his own opinions. We don't care about your own opinion. You're a sinner like us. That's me right here. I'm a sinner like you. You shouldn't care too much about my my opinion. You should care about the Word of God. So what's Jesus preaching? There is no Bible at that time. There's some Old Testament scriptures, but there is no New Testament that we preach from most of the time. Jesus, he's already told us in chapter 1 verse 17 what he's preaching. He's preaching The gospel, he's preaching, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in this news. That's what Jesus is preaching. So what is the gospel? We know this, many of us. Maybe you don't know this. The gospel is not good advice on how to be a better person. If you're here this morning to find out how to be a better person, you've come to the wrong place. You could go to a Jewish synagogue or you could go to a mosque to find that out. You come to this gathering, I hope, to hear good news. And good news is this. You're a sinner. There's no hope for you. The only hope is the grace of God through Christ. But Christ came. That's the gospel. Christ, the Son of God, came to walk in this flesh, on this earth, to live a life that you can't live, to die a death that you deserve because of your rebellion against God. You deserve death. Christ took your death on the cross in our place. He did it. It's accomplished. When Christ died and was resurrected, He actually saved people. He actually saved people. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying. Believe. Believe in Him. That in a sense, Jesus is the gospel. He is the message of the gospel. That God came to save sinners, not that sinners need to somehow get God's attention and be good enough to be saved. Jesus saves sinners. So Jesus is preaching this, right? He's in this little house church. He's in this little missional community gathering. There's 50 or so people at the most trying to, trying to cram their way in, and he's preaching the gospel to them. Now, listen, if, this is what every missional community leader wants, okay? This is what every preacher wants. Nobody ever says it. Well, yeah, we do say it. But, like, this is the problem we want to have. There's no more seating. We're just, you know, like, that's like the good complaints that you have, like mission of Yeah, just really difficult. Our mission of communion is really difficult because there's just so many people. We had them lined out the door last night right? We're sharing the gospel with people, and there's so many that want to hear it. They're just busting down. There's cars all the way up the street. There's no more parking, right? This is the problem. We're going to have to go to another service. We're going to have to plan a church. This is the problem everybody wants to have, and if it's me, I'm going to be honest. If it's me right now, and I'm Jesus, and I'm sitting there, and they're clamoring for my attention, and they're, the house is full, and they're crushed out the door, I'm thinking, oh man, what do I, okay, you know what I can do? I'm going to go up on the roof, and I'm going to preach from the roof, man, I'm going to preach from the roof because obviously if I'm up on the roof, the masses can just gather and I'll look out at the sea of humanity and they'll all, right, and I'll preach the gospel to them and more people will get saved and it'll be amazing. That's what I'm going to do. And back then, their houses typically had a stairway up to the roof and the the roof was made of beams that had been laid across and then covered with sticks on top of that and then they would put clay on top of that or clay tiles on top of that and it would be a flat roof and during some of their festivals they would sleep up there. The kids would always love it sleeping outside under the stars. They would hang their laundry up there. It was like a deck. It was like equivalent to a modern day deck on top of the roof. So if I'm thinking, if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, okay, we need more room. We need more room. I'm going up on top of the roof and I'm going to preach to the masses but that's not what Jesus does. It's so weird to me. Jesus sits there. People can't get in. Does your version of Jesus ever think about that? There's people on the outside here looking in, and I want to get in. I want to hear what Jesus has to say, but they can't. And Jesus doesn't solve the problem. Jesus sits there and continues to teach. He doesn't get up. He doesn't send anyone to bust out a wall and expand the building. He's okay with it. it. It's shocking to me. Now, what happens next is a little concerning, I would say. Here comes four dudes, right? Let, let's, look, let's look at the verse. Let's keep going. Uh, there's no, many gathered together, so there was not any more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, they, bringing to him, bringing to Jesus, a paralytic, somebody who's completely paralyzed, carried by four men. Okay, you see the problem. These and listen, church folks. If you've heard this story before, I hope you can see it with new eyes. All right, I hope you can see this. What's going on here? These four men, these four friends, have this paraplegic on a cot, and they carry him. They've heard the miracle worker is in town, and I was reading a book by David Flusser. He's a a, a scholar, a Hebrew scholar. And he's not even a believer. And he said that there was back in Jesus' day, during this time, there was many healers. Being a healer wasn't even that big of a deal back in the day. And they had heard this healer was there, and they're going to carry this Jesus. They're going to carry their buddy to meet Jesus. And they come to the door, and there's a crowd around the building. Now I've experienced this as I preach the gospel in Africa, and right now we've got we're training up church planters in Africa to lead. Uh, we've converted all of mission. Fishers of Men Ministry into missional community-driven churches. So we're, we've got almost... Uh, right now we have over 50 MC leaders in a two-year training program to plant missional communities all across Kenya. And I've been into Kenya and see these little houses and packed full and people all the way around, and there's no way anyone's getting in there. If somebody's inside, you're not getting to them. And now these four guys have a problem. They've got their buddy. They want to bring him to this miracle worker. They want to bring him to this Jesus, but they can't get in. But they do see these little steps that lead lead up to the roof. So what do they do? And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, can you imagine this? In the middle of your missional community or in the middle of this gathering, these dudes start making a lot of noise, right? Jesus, this is perfect though. Jesus is speaking about the gospel. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God breaking into their present life, that the future reality of the new heavens and the new earth is here now. You can have healing now. You can have wholeness now. You can meet God now. It's not just about salvation. It's about kingdom of God breaking in now, and all of a sudden, when he's talking about this, he's preaching the gospel, crumbs start to fall from the ceiling. Can you imagine this? God's breaking in the son of God has left heaven and he's entered into your creation. They're they're like, right? Now, this is when people start, I would think people are freaking out. Obviously, Jesus did not have any deacons yet, right? Because I've seen deacons give mamas the stink eye for their baby's slightest whimper. And here we've got people breaking into the roof of a building and everybody's just like, well, I guess let him go, <laughs> right? I imagine Peter or Peter's, you know, Peter and Peter's wife are like, oh, well, call the State Farm agent because <laughs> this is an issue, right? This is obviously a loud and obnoxious ab- distraction, but Jesus just lets him continue, right? Breaking into a ceiling is not like a one-hit wonder, this is going to take repeated blows, removing things. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a distraction. And this is where things get weird. And I'm going to tell you, this is where Jesus um, doesn't fit in our boxes. Jesus doesn't, if you think Jesus is, uh, is your homeboy, is your pal, you think Jesus, if you really think you get Jesus, it just shows that you don't get Jesus. It shows the, you don't know what you don't know. Right? You don't know how ignorant that we are, that Jesus always is confrontational and he never fits the way we want him to fit and he never does what we want him to do. He's always doing something new and fresh and exciting in ways that we wouldn't expect him to. And look what he does right here. And when Jesus saw their faith, now I got to pause right there. When he saw their faith, he's specifically talking about Uh, the guys who are bringing Jesus, or bringing the guy to Jesus, but also the man on his cot, right? Because more than likely, the man on his cot, he's the one who's saying, guys, I need to get to this miracle worker. And they're like, yeah, you know what? You do got to get to this miracle worker. So these people are responding in faith, and Jesus sees what other people can't see. He sees their faith. Now, I want to ask you, don't you think many people... If you ever say, I don't, know if, I don't know if you have faith. I don't know if you really believe the gospel. <sighs> what do you mean I don't believe it? How would you know I don't believe it? You can't see my heart. You can't see in my mind. See, we have been tricked into believing that faith is mental ascent or faith is even emotional ascent. Jesus says he sees their faith. Faith isn't just something that's internal, that takes place in the soul of a person. James, the brother of Jesus in his own book, says that faith without works is dead. We've heard that before. Martin Luther says that we're saved by faith alone, but never by faith that remains alone. That faith is, is, is a such of a substance, I'm going to speak of it that way, that when it comes into you, it changes how you act. Act. It's a belief that changes your behavior. It comes into you and changes how you live your life. And if it doesn't change the way you live your life, it's not faith. If you mentally assent to the works of Jesus, if you trust Christ in your heart, but it doesn't change your life, you're not saved. Faith reacts within us. We believe and it pushes us out to live a certain way. This is what the the pillar New Testament commentary said on this verse. The first mention of faith here in the book of Mark, the first mention of faith significantly links it with acting rather than with knowing or feeling. We know nothing of the beliefs of these four friends of the paralytic except that they take action, including circumventing crowds and removing roofs to ensure that their their charge is brought to Jesus. See, faith moves us to action. And these men's faith move them to carry their friend, who knows how far, but not just carry them to Jesus, but to figure out a way to get their friend to Jesus, face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, that's the type of friends we need. We don't need just friends who comfort us when we're mourning or suffering. We need friends who are willing to do whatever it takes to get us in front of Jesus, to get us in a place where we're going to hear the gospel. That's the type of friends we need, friends that don't take no for an answer. Can I ask you this too? That's the kind of friend we need to be. No matter what our friend's problems are, this one was paralysis, right? It could be cancer. It could be a broken relationship. It could be struggle at work. The answer is get our friend to Jesus. What can I do to get my friends to Jesus? Charles Spurgeon, he goes a little, he's a little bolder, and he says this, do you have no desire for people to come to Jesus? Then be sure you're not saved yourself. That something in us, when God saves us and God changes us, it causes us to be men like this, men carrying a stretcher, men and women who want to see others come to know Christ. But this is where, like I said, things get weird. So first off, I want to say, like, could people see your faith? Can people look at your life and go, why does he live that way? Why does she live? Do you realize it's crazy to break into somebody's house through the roof? Right? Don't do that to my house. I'm just going to let you know, right? Don't do that in my house. I have weapons and four little children, right, that I will protect, Right? It's, it's crazy to break into someone's house. But guess what? That kind of behavior demands a gospel explanation. Why are you doing this? Because our friend is paralyzed and the only person who can help is in here and he's trapped by a crowd of wannabes. He's, crap, he's trapped. He's trapped. He's trapped. Probably too. He's trapped by a crowd of people who just want to be entertained by Jesus. But we want our friend to come to know the living Savior Jesus Christ, who can actually do something about his hopelessness. Are we that type of people? Are we that passionate to get our friends into missional community where they can encounter the gospel? Are we that passionate about getting our friends and family into a gathering where they can hear the gospel and they can meet Jesus face-to-face? Are we that passionate about it? And if we're not, then we're not believing the gospel. Then it's lack of faith in our own heart. Then it's sin in our own heart. And I'm challenging you this morning to repent and believe the gospel. Christian, you need the gospel. If you're not bringing people to Jesus, then you've forgotten how good it is. You've forgotten how lost you are. You've forgotten how broken you are and what he saved you from. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, let me put it, this is where, I guess I've said it three times now. This is where things just about to get weird. Drop them down. Comes down, Jesus sees faith. Jesus is pleased with faith. This is what he says. Son, all eyes are on him. Son, your sins are forgiven. You got a best friend. They've got a rare cancer. They've got three months to live. What are you gonna do? You look on the internet, you figure out all oh, this one guy. He's the best in the world. He specializes in this type of cancer. There's a slim chance. Let's see what we can do. You, you, you empty your bank account. You get people together. Your mission or community comes together. You pool your resources. You, you and your friend, you travel down to wherever it's at in this country or another country. You finally get in front of this physician who could possibly have you give you good news. The physician walks in. He says, I've got great news. I've looked at your scans. I've went over all the reports and, he got, and i got great news for you. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Awkward is the word that comes to my mind. What's your first thought? Can you imagine? I, I was, you're being let down. This is even, you're not just flying somewhere. And he's, being, he's hanging from the roof, right? He's paralyzed. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, you're looking up to your buddies. That's not why I came. My problem is my legs and arms don't work, Jesus. I'm not a king that his friends just carry him around, right? Like I actually need to be carried around because I can't walk, Jesus. I think you misread me. You misdiagnosed me. Right? I came here because my friend has cancer. I came here because I have cancer. That's my concern. That's my problem, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? First off, you notice how... Let's just add insult to injury here. Paralyzed guy, comes from the ceiling. Jesus says, hey, sinner. That's what he does. He calls him a sinner. Your sins are forgiven in front of the whole group. Everybody's like, And there's already the stigma of being paralyzed because many people believe that if you're sick, it's because you didn't have enough faith. If you're sick, it's because God's mad at you or you've sinned, and so it's punishment from God. And that's bogus, but many people believe that kind of thing. So to add insult to injury, paralyzed guy comes from the ceiling. Jesus says, hey, there, sinner. I'm sure that was offensive. And guess what? That's one reason people run from Jesus and people walk away from Jesus because Jesus doesn't coddle us. He doesn't pet us. He speaks to our reality. We are sinners. We are rebels. We disobey God from birth. We run from God from birth. We are broken in our souls. We are sinners first and foremost. And if you can't accept that, then you can't accept forgiveness or grace. And that's humiliating. And there's people in our society, you've got friends right now who get angry at this. We got people in our mission communities, they get angry at this. Don't call me a sinner. It's funny that in our society right now, the greater sin is actually calling someone a sinner than it is actually breaking commandments. Break commandments all you want, but if you tell somebody that, you're a sinner. How dare you, you intolerant person, right? We're intolerance toward people who call people sinners. Now listen, this week, John Piper made the statement at the conference that I went to, and he said this, everyone hates suffering. Everyone hates cancer. Everyone hates paralysis. Everyone hates brokenness in our homes and brokenness in our world and racism. Everybody hates this. But nobody hates sin. See, that's what's going on here. Everybody hates sickness. Everybody hates cancer. Everybody hates paralysis. We all know, no one is confused. We all know cancer is bad. But very few of us hate sin as much as we hate cancer. Very few of us hate sin as much as we would hate paralysis. But Jesus seems to know something that nobody else does. Jesus seems to know that paralysis was not this man's greatest problem. This man's greatest problem was his sin that separates him from a holy God. Now, this could be really offensive. Jesus looks at us in all of our suffering. And he says, your greatest problem is not your suffering. It's your sin. You might be in an awful relationship and it's very difficult to hold things together. Guess what? That is suffering and that is bad and that is dark and that is difficult. But your greatest problem isn't that. Your greatest problem is your sin. How are you responding to that difficulty? Because the suffering that's been applied to you, that's not your sin. That could be somebody else's sin. But how do you respond to it? That's your greatest problem. Cancer is awful if you get it, but how do you respond to that. That's your greatest problem. Cancer is bad. Sin is worse. Paralysis is bad. Sin is worse. Cancer has no power to separate us from God. Sin does. Paralysis cannot send us to hell. Sin will. Can I ask you, what do you think right now in your mind, if you survey your life, what's your greatest problem? you look at your life and say what is my greatest problem not enough money broken relationships difficult kids job's not going well can't sick in my body sick in my mind this guy he's paralyzed and he didn't have back in the day he didn't have all kind of stuff that we have today wheelchairs that can literally go through your mind. and move. He's laying on a bed. There's no doubt in this guy's mind, this is what he thought, my greatest problem is my paralysis. And every morning he would wake up and say, if I was healed, then I'd be whole. If I just had my legs, then I could be a man. If I could just have my leg, my body, then I could get married and I could have a woman and I could have kids and I could have a family and I could have a full life. All I need is, is my legs. If I get my legs, I'm a happy man. I'm a full man. My greatest problem is my paralysis. Jesus says, your greatest problem is your sin, not your paralysis. And I'll deal with that first. I'll deal with your greatest problem, sin first. Now, many of us, we all think, if I get that thing, then I'll be happy. My one greatest problem. If I solve that, I'll be happy. Listen to this illustration. Uh, Tim Keller is a preacher in New York City, and he's one of my biggest influences. He's an old guy on the end of his uh, ministry career. He's in his sixties, and he gives this illustration from this lady named Cynthia Hem- Heimel, and she used to write for the Village Voice, a magazine there, a local magazine there in, in New York City, and she was a New York City writer, and she'd been a writer for years, and she had been friends with many people, uh, actors, musicians, before they got famous, right? She's got all these friends, and they're working in nightclubs, and they're working in bars, and they're working in coffee shops. And all of them, right, they're thinking one thing. If I just get famous, if I just get my big break on Broadway, or if my album would sell, if I just get in front of the right people, then my life will make sense. Then my life will have meaning. They all thought that way. And this lady is not a Christian. Listen to this. This is what she says, writing about this. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. So they worked, they pushed. And the morning after, each one of them became famous, however, They wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, was going to provide them personal fulfillment and happiness. That thing has happened and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She's saying the greatest thing that could happen is that these people get their wish. They get their one thing, and then they realize their one thing didn't satisfy. Their one thing didn't change them in the bottom of who they are. And this is what she says. This is not a Christian. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now, that's a twisted view of God. That's from an unbeliever who's diagnosing exactly what this paraplegic felt. If I just had my legs, I'd be a man. If I just had my legs, I'd be happy. And guess what? Jesus knows a day later, my legs are sore. I'm tired of all this walking. My back hurts. A day later, a week later, he'd want something else. A day later, a week later, the reality would set in. This isn't what I wanted. This wasn't my deepest deepest wish. This didn't satisfy my soul. See, you know what Jesus is saying to the paralyzed man here when he says, your sins are forgiven? Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play that rotten joke on you. I'm not going to give you your deepest wish. I'm going to go deeper than your deepest wish. It's not legs you're looking for. It's forgiveness that you're looking for. It's grace that you're looking for. I'm going to go deeper than that. You want to be reconnected with the almighty God. And I'm going to go deeper than your paralysis. And I'm going to reconnect you with your, the almighty God. I'm going to forgive you and wash you clean. Now listen, here's the reality. Suffering. Cancer, brokenness, these are all fruits of sin. That's all in the world because sin. But what Jesus is doing here is he's not going to go plucking fruit off of our lives. Oh, you got cancer? Let me take that off and replace it with something else. Oh, you got a broken relationship? Oh, your marriage isn't going well? Your job's not going well? Running around a tree working on fruit. Jesus is going to go right to the root. Your problem is your sin, and I will deal with that. I will forgive you. Now, if you're in this room and you think Jesus doesn't want anything to do with sinners, hear this. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writing to his younger protege, Timothy says, this statement is worthy, and, and, or worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. That's why he came. He came to heal, not just paraplegics. He came to forgive sin. So if you are a sinner this morning, Christ loves you. Christ is pursuing you. Christ has died for you. He wants to be near you. He wants, people have brought you here. However, they brought you. Thankfully, nobody lowered you to the ceiling, but they packed you in their minivan or they invited you over here or whatever. You're here this morning because Christ wants to forgive you. Christ wants to save you. Now, we begin to see something different here, though. Like I said, everybody isn't happy about Jesus. How many of us, when somebody says, you're a sinner, go, oh, thank you. I repent and believe. I feel so forgiven and loved. In fact, most of us are moralistic. What does moralistic mean? That means we have a list of good. Here are the good people. Here are the bad people. We all want to classify ourselves over here as a good person. The problem with that is Jesus has two classifications, himself, perfect, and everyone else, sinners. Christ is the only sinless one. Everyone else needs a Savior. So there's this great showdown that's building now, and we're going to see it in the scribes and Pharisees. And I don't want us to write these people off as like, you know, somehow priests or somehow people that are different than us. All they are is legalistic people, moralistic people, and every one of us in this room are moralistic and legalistic in some realm. We all judge others based upon some standard that we have, and these guys had a standard like that. And what happens? When Jesus says, I forgive you, paralyzed guy, I forgive you, they go, (gasps) they're shocked. They're offended. Look what happens. Now, some of the scribes religious folks, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Yeah, they would never, you know, interrupt the service. Why does this man speak like that? You might be saying that about me today. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. And blasphemy, we, would, we don't use that word around here, but in their day, that was, a, uh, that was death sentence. That was punishable by death. That's, this is what got Jesus killed. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. Now, these people kind of get what's going on here. They get mad, not because he healed a paraplegic, right, which he does, Not because, but because he forgave him his sins. Now, I want you to see, what is this? I walk up to you, Nick, I'm gonna, I walk up to you, and I punch you right in the nose. Okay? You got on my nerves. My wife comes around behind me. She's really sweet. She goes, oh, are you okay? Justin, I forgive you. Right? What's Nick going to say? What? You, she doesn't get to forgive you. You hit me in the nose. This is what's going on right here. When Jesus says, I forgive you. What he's saying is, I am God and all of your sins and all of your offenses have been against me. I am the offended party. I am the one who's been punched in the nose by your rebellion and by your sin. You've been building your life on some other thing. You've been worshiping some other God. You've been obeying some other thing. You've punched me in the face and because I am the offended party, I can therefore forgive you. My wife can't forgive me for punching Nick in the face. God can only forgive you because your sins haven't been primarily against your wife or your kids or your business partners. Your sins are against God. God created you. He said, love me, love others. Therefore, anytime you break those commandments to not love others and not love him, you're primarily sinning against him. David says in Psalm 51, after committing adultery and then having his adulteress's husband murdered, he says to God when he's finally been confronted by the prophet, Against you and you only have I sinned, God. I repent in dust and ashes. I repent for my sins. This is what's blowing these religious people's minds. How dare him forgive people. To forgive means he thinks he's God. The Old Testament said that. They got it. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus looks at this sinful man and he says, I am the offended party. Your sins have been against me. And listen. I forgive you. I love this. Then this next question. Jesus, they're questioning in their heart. Jesus doesn't even, he doesn't hear anything. He just can sense through the Holy Spirit that these men are doubting, there's something going on in their heart. And look what He says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in a spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, look, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, scholars have been puzzled over that question for literally centuries, 2,000 years. Because that's a really, Jesus was brilliant. Like I said, this unbeliever, Uh, uh, Flusser that I read in his book about the sage from Galilee he's overwhelming overwhelmed at the brilliance of Jesus Jesus here what is harder to say your sins are forgiven or rise up take your or or be healed well I guess it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who knows if they really are right I could say yeah yeah I forgive you and in my heart I'm like I'm gonna kill you as soon as I get a chance I'm I'm gonna get back at you I could say I forgive you, but I really don't, right? But if I say you're healed and it doesn't happen, obviously, you know, that I'm without power, right? I'm, I'm proving that I'm no big deal, right? So what's actually harder, to say I'll forgive you or to say I'll heal you? Now, this is, which, this is, this is crazy to me. It's the opposite for Jesus. Jesus had the power to heal somebody's body because he was the son of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. So all Jesus had to do was go, paralyzed guy, you're healed. Bam! He'd already did it with a leper. He's already did it with Peter's mother-in-law. All it takes is the word of Jesus because of his authority. Think about this. The only way Jesus can say, I forgive you, is because Jesus Christ was on his way to the cross. Jesus couldn't forgive this man unless Jesus was willing, as the Son of God, to go and die his death on the cross. See, Jesus' words can create healing, but it took his blood to forgive. Far easier to speak healing into someone's life for Jesus than it was to actually forgive someone because there's a debt. When I punch Nick in the face, there's a debt there. I've wounded him. I've hurt him. He needs justice. If you've ever been abused, you know that you need justice. And I, nobody can walk up and just go, oh, I forgive you. There needs to be retribution. There needs to be justice. Well, God is no different. If God just passed over our sins and went, oh, no big deal, I forget about it, then all the victims in the world, all the victims in the world, none of them would get justice. And God is the ultimate victim. All of our sins have been against him. So what does he do? He's willing to place all of our sin on Jesus, take Jesus to the cross, empty his wrath out, empty his justice out to clear the court. To say, not guilty. I forgive you because Christ took your punishment. Christ paid your price. Forgiving this man was infinitely more costly for Jesus than healing his body. Healing takes his words. Forgiving costs his blood. Now listen. Sickness is awful. Cancer is awful. Paralysis is awful. There are many people in our society that get enamored with physical healing. Name it, claim it, preachers. Preachers that claim that Jesus will heal everybody. People that, pray, if you believe the gospel, he'll make you rich and healthy and happy. Bogus preachers that preach a false gospel. There's a lot of them out there. Turn on TB, Don't turn on TBN. But if you turn on TBN, you're going to hear all that garbage. But every single person that Jesus heals of a sickness or Jesus heals of a demon possession, every one of them gets sick again and dies. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Jesus, eventually Lazarus dies. See, sickness is not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is our sin. When you die, if Christ has not taken your sin, your sin is still there. And it's this sin that goes on into eternity that leads us to, from se- to separation from God. It's our sin that leads us to damnation. It's our sin that leads us away from all hope and holiness and good, the goodness of God. Jesus came not just to heal our bodies, though he does do that. Jesus came to heal our soul. Jesus came to sever the root of sin. He came to make us brand new. Let's finish this scripture as I close. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now listen, why did he heal the guy's body? Did he have compassion? Absolutely. But he healed the guy's body because he wanted to put the gospel on display. He wanted to give a visual representation of the gospel. He says specifically right there but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he knows if he says, I forgive you your sins, they're all going to go, he doesn't have the right to do that. How can you forgive somebody from something that they've sinned against somebody else? You can't forgive sins. He says, I want you to know that though your sins are red like scarlet, they've been made white as snow. All the guilt, all the shame, that it comes along with all the sins of your youth and all the sins of your life, I have paid the price for them, and I want you to know it, so I'm going to show you by healing this man. Now, this is, this is where the gospel should shock us. <laughs> Paralyzed man hanging from the ceiling. I forgive you. But so, so that everyone would know that I have the power to forgive sins. Get up. Take your cot. Go home. Um I'm paralyzed. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, "We are dead in our trespasses and sin." Dead. What can a dead person do to not be dead? That's the question you have to ask yourself when you start thinking about the gospel because God doesn't say we're paralyzed. That's not the verdict he speaks to us. He says, because of our sins, we're dead on the table. Now listen, you have a a dead person on the table. You walk in and there's the cable, you know, the little jumper cables over here and you go, hey buddy, all you got to do, here's jumper cables. Get up, grab the cables, pop yourself, go home. This is what Jesus is doing here. Rise up, take up your bed, walk home. He, people get so freaked out when Jesus commands us to do impossible things. Jesus is complete, and God the Father is completely okay with commanding us to do impossible things like this repent and believe the gospel. That is impossible to do if you're dead. You can't repent and believe if you're dead. So what does he do? Ephesians 2 8 says, that he gives us grace and faith so that we can believe, and it's not any of our work. It's all of him so that no man could boast. So Jesus, he gives us what he demands. He gives this man faith, and he demands it from him. Take up your bed and walk. This man reaches down, picks up his walk, picks up his stuff, and he walks and he's healed instantaneously. So when God says, repent and believe, he's speaking to dead sinners in here, but he can can require that of us because he's already given it to us. If you're here in this room this morning and you say, I want to turn from my sins, I want to embrace Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I want this new life of the kingdom breaking into my life, that means God is already at work in your heart. He's already given you that faith. He's already stirring the Spirit of God in your soul. Or, the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. There were scribes and Pharisees in this room. Who does he think he is? Sinners. Don't call me a sinner. You might be a sinner. I know how good I am. I know how I obey the law. I know how I've got all my friends that tell me how good I am. We got... There's really three options here. When you come and meet Jesus, you can be the paralyzed that gets made brand new and leaves dancing after meeting Jesus. You can be the scribe moralistic who leaves angry that anyone would call him a sinner anyone would forgive sins or you can be the crowd that kind of goes show us something else Jesus I'm inviting you to be a disciple of Jesus, somebody who was dead and has been made new and drops everything to follow Jesus. Someone who was paralyzed that their friends or family brought them to Jesus, they met Jesus, their life's been made new, and they leave dancing and singing and worshiping our great God together. I want to be a church full of those types of folks. I want to be a church full of dancing, ex-paralyzed folks, worshiping God. Dead men and women who've been brought to new life and they're so thrilled, they're so overwhelmed at the love of God towards sinners that they'll do anything possible to get their friends in front of Jesus face to face. Invite them, message them, bring them here. I'm one of my friends in missional community about a year and a half ago or a couple years ago. We've been praying for his sister and brother-in-law for a long time and we had just been praying for him in missional. He wanted to come to Jesus, wanted him to come to the gathering, wanted to come to the missional community, didn't know what to do. And so he just sends out this Facebook message to a bunch of his family and friends, just saying, hey, what do, you, do you guys have any questions about God? Do you have any questions about church or religion or who Jesus is and what's going on? And that's a bold thing to do, right? Send out this message on Facebook. And his brother-in-law responded, said, yeah, you know, I do have some questions. I do have concerns, blah, 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 blah. Answered that question, invited him to the missional community, comes to the missional community, meets Jesus, family meets Jesus. I can't even tell you what's going on in the past year and a half. Why? Because one guy was bold enough to kind of bring his friends to Jesus, right? Do something outside of the box to get someone in front of of Jesus, in a context where the gospel is going to be declared and demonstrated. All of us are called to do that. We're all called to be missionaries. Let me pray this morning. Father, No other story in all the world is more compelling than your gospel. You created us. We've rebelled and wanted to live life on our own terms. Even before that, the angels, a third of the angels rebelled from you and you cut them off from eternity. You condemned them for eternity. You gave no grace to the fallen angels. No second chance to the angels. And yet you created man who's a little lower than the angels, who's a worm and dust in your sight. And when we rebelled, when we rebelled from you, you didn't cut us off for eternity. You sent the Son of God to redeem us to live the perfect life that we can't and to die a substitutionary death that we all deserve. And even now, you have the Holy Spirit here among us making all things new. Even us, today, this morning, that you've given faith to some people in this room and you've brought the dead to life, not because of their works, but because of the grace of God. And I pray that there's Scribes and Pharisees in this room too. And I pray, Father, that you would soften their heart today and let them hear the gospel and let them confess their sins and admit that they're a sinner because Christ came to save sinners and Paul the Apostle said, of which I am the foremost. Let us see the depths of our sin so we can be aware of the immense grace that you give us. The shoreless ocean of your grace let us swim in it father let us feel the great love for us in christ i pray this in jesus name as we come this morning to partake in the lord's supper let us confess our sins to a savior who's good and pronounces over us i forgive you i wipe all of your sins past present and future are gone No longer will you be condemned. Now you have my smile and my pleasure because of the work of Jesus. Let us receive that into ourselves this morning. In Christ's powerful name, amen.